But when people in our culture think about Christians, I'm thinking of people who themselves are not Christians, probably people who you know, don't have a lot of interaction with Christians, they probably haven't been to church much in their life. When people like that think about Christians today, what things do you think come to their minds first? Do you think it's politics? How Christians vote? Do you think it's all the things that Christians are against? The things that we, you know, people talk about boycotting and, you know, opposing and the things that Christians get mad about sometimes? Do you think it's the scandalous things that some Christian leaders end up in the news for? Another way to ask the same question is, what do many Christians tend to be the loudest about? You know, there are some people who are louder than others in the sense that they, they tend to talk more and they talk at a high volume, not necessarily literally, but figuratively, you know what I'm talking about? And, and then there's a bunch of quiet people who don't get heard, but there's the people who are always shouting about stuff on Facebook and wherever else, you know, and... Is that what people are thinking about, do you think, when they think about Christians? I'm concerned sometimes that it is. But there's not a lot that I can do about that. There's not a lot that you could do about that. We don't have control over what other people do, what another Christian leader does, or what another Christian leader says on social media or whatever. I can't control what anybody else puts on Facebook or gets on the news to talk about. I'm not responsible for that either, and neither are you. But I am responsible for what I do. For what I say, for how I live, for what I do and don't put on Facebook, and for what I am most vocal about, what I'm loudest about. And so are you. So I want you to ask yourself this question this morning as we get ready to look at John 13. What do you want people to think about when they think about Christians? Not just what do they think about, what do you want them to think about? What do you wish people would think about first when they think about Christians? Better yet, what do you yourself want to be known for? What do you want to draw the most attention to in your life? What do you want and what should you want to mark your life as a follower of Christ? That's what I want us to think about as we look to John 13. And we're going to pick it up in verse 18. And then we'll go through to the end of the chapter. Uh, Jesus is meeting with his disciples here. He's just washed his disciples' feet, giving them the most uh, dramatic example of humble, uh, sacrificial service and love uh, that anyone could possibly give short of what he's going to do next in just a few hours, which is to literally lay down his life in sacrificial, humble love on the cross. But as he does that... and explains the significance of that and and talks about how uh, those who belong to him have been made clean because of what he's about to do on the cross. He says in verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. 
I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, what makes up the bulk of the the first part of this passage is the coming betrayal of Jesus by one of his disciples, by Judas. Now, we know that that's coming. Jesus knew that that was coming. In fact, he talks about the fact that he knows that that is coming here in chapter 13. He tells his disciples... Uh, I know that one of you, not all of you are clean, right? One of you is not clean. He's referring to Judas, though he doesn't name him here. And he says uh, that what Judas is about to do, in one sense, had to be done. Right? The scripture had to be fulfilled. That doesn't mean that Judas you know, had no choice or anything like that. Judas chose to do what he did. And yet what he did fulfilled The scripture, when Jesus says that, he quotes from Psalm 41, which is a psalm of David, where David talks about being betrayed by someone that he had a close fellowship with, an intimate connection with, right? He says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
In other words, the enemy who is seeking to strike me down is not somebody out there. It's someone who I've sat at the table with. Someone I have shared a meal with. Someone close to me, someone near me has betrayed me. David experienced that, of course, in the act of his own son, Absalom, who sought to take the kingdom away from David. Jesus experienced an even greater betrayal as one of his own disciples traveled with him for years, shared meal after meal with him, saw Jesus' miracles, heard Jesus' teaching, decided in the end that he would rather have money than have Jesus. Literally sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. But Jesus tells his disciples that this is going to happen for a reason. Verse 19, he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. If Jesus had not known that Judas would do this, if he was betrayed by someone in his own inner circle, one of his own disciples, and if we thought that Jesus did not see that coming, could not have seen that coming, and was duped by someone that near to him, that profoundly, we would wonder, could he really be the Son of God and not see that? Could he be God in the flesh and miss something like that right in front of him? Be caught by surprise? Be caught off guard? That'd be hard to believe. And so Jesus tells his disciples ahead of time, Look, I know what's coming. I know that I'm going to be betrayed by one of you. And not only that, but it's going to fulfill Scripture. This is part of God's plan. And I'm telling you this now, so when it happens, you won't be caught off guard. You won't think I was caught off guard. So it won't damage your faith. It won't keep you from believing that I am who I say I am. That I am the Son of God and the Messiah. I'm telling you in advance, so that this helps you believe instead of hinders you from believing. Then... He expresses in verse 21 how troubled he is by this. Just because he knows it's coming, just because he knows it has to happen, just because he knows the scripture will be fulfilled in this, does not mean that Jesus is stoic about it. Jesus is not indifferent to the things that go on around him, the things that happen to him. He's not... He's not unperturbed, right? And sometimes we even have the idea that as Christians, like nothing should affect us. Nothing should trouble our spirits. We should never be in distress or troubled. We should just, to, to have the peace of God means that nothing, nothing ever sort of rocks the boat of our soul. That's just not true. The Bible doesn't expect that of us. Jesus doesn't even model that for us. Jesus says to them in verse 21, or says in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. His soul is, is, is disturbed a little bit because what is about to happen is a terrible thing, a horrible betrayal. Jesus is fully God, so he knows it's coming, but he's fully man, and so it bothers him troubles him. 
That's okay. That's even right. He says to them in verse 21, it's going to be one of you. It's not just that I'm going to be betrayed. They all knew there were people seeking to arrest Jesus. Uh, They probably knew people were trying to kill Jesus. In fact, I know they did. And now he says, though, it's going to be one of you. One of my friends. One of my disciples. One of the people sitting around this table is going to betray me. It's going to hand me over. Verse 22 uh, has been, for me, um, one of the most disturbing verses in the Bible. Because after Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, I would expect the disciples to all look at each other and go, yeah, we know who he's talking about. It's Judas. I've never felt right about that guy. That's what I want them to say. But instead, it says the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. You had no idea. You guys spent years together. You didn't have a suspicion, or at least not a clear one, about who it was going to be. Here's why that troubles me has troubled me in in the past. I've sort of worked through it now, right? But here's why that used to trouble me. The the first reason why it used to trouble me is because I thought, can we ever really know then if someone is genuine? If someone's really a Christian? I mean, if the disciples can all be duped by Judas for years, can we ever really know? And and then the next step, which is not not suggested in the text, but is just where my crazy mind went after that, was then, if they couldn't know about about Judas, whether or not he was genuine, not only can I ever know that about somebody else, can I know that about myself? what What if I'm the Judas and nobody around me suspects it? Those are disturbing thoughts to think, right? So, what do we make of this? A couple of things. First, though the others didn't know it was Judas, Judas knew it was Judas. Judas didn't think he was genuine, that he really loved Jesus and and that he was going to follow Jesus forever and then one day all of a sudden he wakes up and he's trading Jesus for money and he wonders, how did that happen? Judas knew it was Judas. We know that Judas knew it was Judas for a couple of reasons. One, back in verse 2, it says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Uh, Judas already knew his plan. In fact, uh, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mention that Judas plans this out ahead of time. For example, in Matthew 26, verse 14 to 16, it says, One of the twelve, whose name was Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas made a plan. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was about. Now he regretted it, in a sense, later. 
But he knew what he was doing. And later in the text, Jesus says to Judas at one point, go do what you're going to do. And Judas goes and does what he's going to do. He leaves and betrays. Judas knew it was Judas. So you don't need to worry about, like, what if I'm like Judas and I just don't know it? You would know it. Judas knew it at least. So I suspect you would know it too. So there's no reason for you to fear that you're Judas and, and somehow don't know it. But the other side of this is that, that sense in which you know, we wonder, like, can, can we know if somebody else is really a Christian or not? There's a sense in which the answer to that is no. At least not right away. And that does make things difficult, but that's just part of the reality of life. We, we can't know somebody else's heart. Right? You could be friends with Judas and not know that he's Judas. It's scary, that's troubling, but that's the reality. Now, Jesus knew, but nobody else knew. Paul had at least one person in his life that was like this. One of Paul's co-workers was a man named Demas. And Demas later abandoned the faith. Right? Went after the world. Paul evidently didn't see that coming. He knew that kind of thing would happen and could happen, but he didn't know Demas would be one of them, I would assume, or he probably wouldn't have had Demas working with him in the first place. But here's something else we know that is encouraging. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.24, and this this is one of those verses that... um, doesn't get a lot of attention, but it is really helpful, really important. First Timothy 5.24, Paul says, The sins of some, some people are conspicuous. They're obvious. You see them, right? The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. In other words, even Paul says, There are some people you can tell. Man, that guy, you you can see his sins. They go before him and behind him. They're just all around him. Everybody knows what kind of person he is. But there are some people who are able to hide their sins, at least for a while. And it's not your fault or my fault that we can't see it. You've probably lived long enough now, many of you. I, I have now. I remember hearing people talk about this when I was younger, and now I've Sadly lived long, I mean, I'm glad I've lived long enough, but sadly have seen it multiple times, see this kind of thing play out, where some people are able to hide their sin from a lot of people for a long time, but never forever. Never forever. It comes out eventually. We're usually shocked and saddened and surprised by that. But we shouldn't feel guilty about it if they were hiding it and we couldn't see it. We're not God. We can't know everything. That's just, sadly, sometimes the way that it is. Jesus doesn't berate the disciples for not knowing who among them was going to be the betrayer. But Jesus knew. And in the end, that's all that really mattered was that Jesus knew. Peter wanted to know, though, and I can't blame him. I think if I'd have been at the table, I'd have been wondering. I've wanted to know, too. 
And John, who here refers to himself as the beloved disciple, was sitting close to Jesus. And so Peter kind of motions to John and says, hey, ask Jesus who he's talking about. You know, get, get the inside scoop. And so John does. It says in verse 25 that that disciple, talking about John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered Jesus told him in verse 26, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have, have dipped it. Now evidently he said that only where John could hear it. He didn't say that to the whole table. Because later when Jesus tells Judas to go out, nobody goes, oh, that's what he's going to do. They think he's going to go buy some food for the feast or go give some money to the poor or something because Judas was in charge of the money bag. They don't know, even at that point, that it's going to be Judas and what he's going to do. Apparently only John and Jesus know now because John has been told by Jesus who it's going to be. Judas, at the end of verse 30, departs in darkness. John tells us that it was night. And that's not just a note about what time of day it was. It's, there's a weight that comes with that, right? That the darkest deeds are often done in the darkest part of the day. And that's what Judas did as well. It's by cover of night that he goes to betray the Savior of the world. Now, when Judas leaves, that's another signal to Jesus that his hour has gotten even closer. Remember, he's already said that his hour has come, the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of his death, the moment where he will be glorified, where he will display his great love and mercy and, and kindness and, and humility through his death on the cross. And that's what he's talking about in verse 31 and 32. He talks about being glorified and God being glorified in him and God glorifying him. And that's all that's going to happen in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then Jesus tells his disciples what he told some of the Jews earlier in verse 33, that he's about to leave and they're not going to get to come with him. Right? He says, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. This is something Jesus is going to do alone. He's going to go to the cross alone. He's going to die Alone, his disciples are not going to join him. And then he says, he gives them sort of a parting summary of what he wants them to do. Right in verse 34 and 35. And these verses are huge. But he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, there's a sense in which you ought to hear that and say, how is that new? Right? Because Jesus has, not, not only has Jesus been telling his disciples to love each other and love their enemies and, and all those things like that. But even in the Old Testament, God told his people to love their neighbor. Right? In Leviticus 19, verse 18, God said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that, that's not new. In what sense then is Jesus saying, I give you a new commandment? Well, the newness is this, and I didn't come up with this. Others have said this, and I think it's right. The newness of this new commandment is not the commandment to love. It's the commandment to love as Jesus has loved. Because what Jesus is about to do 
in laying down his life for his disciples, for his people, for everyone who will believe in him. What he is about to do becomes the standard, the greatest expression, the definition, as it were, of what God's love looks like. That's what John was talking about in 1 John in the passage we read earlier, right? It's God's love for us. And specifically, God's love showed in Jesus' death on the cross that defines for us what love is. So it's not just love your neighbor. It's love each other as Jesus loved you. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus says. That's the calling. That's the command. That's what Jesus expects of us. And not only that, but in verse 35, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is what Jesus singles out as the mark of his disciples. The mark of those who belong to Jesus. It's not the things they get mad about. It's not the things that they are against. It's not the people that they uh, dislike or oppose. It's how they treat each other. How they love each other. How they sacrificially lay down their lives for one another. Jesus says that's what people are going to see and then say, those people really belong to Jesus. Those are the people who have been with Jesus. Those are the people who are following Jesus. That's the mark. That's the mark. That's how people will recognize us as genuine disciples. And that means that should be our aim. To be known by our love. That should be our aim not only as individuals, but also as a church, as a body of believers. That we love one another. We take care of each other. We make sacrifices for one another. Now, I have to say that God has been very gracious to us here. This is a loving church. It really is. And I'm not just saying that because I'm your pastor. Uh, this is a loving church. I can say that because I see you pray for each other. I can say that because I see you take care of each other when you're in need. I, I, I know how you check in on each other, take meals, send cards, make phone calls. I see you talk with each other and encourage one another and listen to each other. I, I see your fellowship and I'm grateful to be a part of it. I mean, I've been here almost 14 years. I wouldn't stay somewhere that long if I didn't feel loved. Right? It would be a long time to stay somewhere that was not loving. Right? This is a loving church. But it's always good for us to be reminded about what matters most. And Jesus says this is what matters. Our love for God and our love for for each other. That's what we want to mark us. That's what we want to be loudest about, so to speak, is our love for one another. Now, finally, in this passage, 
Jesus mentions Peter's coming denial. It's interesting that Jesus' command to love is sort of sandwiched between Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. I think that has to be significant, though I don't know what all to make of it. But here's what Jesus says next, verse 36. Peter said, Lord, where are you going? One thing we know about Peter, he loves Jesus. He always wants to be with Jesus. And so Jesus says, I'm going somewhere you can't come. Peter says, I want to know where that is. (laughs) Because I'd like to be there, even though you told me I can't. So Jesus says again, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. And then he adds, now. But you will follow afterward. So don't worry, Peter, this is not permanent. You're going to get to come with me. Just not yet. Peter's not giving up that easily, though. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Even if I have to die, is that what you're talking about? You're saying I can't come with you because you're going to die? I'll die. That's what it takes. I'm coming. I'm going with you. But Jesus answered, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And of course, we know that is what happened. But it's also not the end of the story. Because after his death and resurrection, Jesus meets with Peter, restores Peter. Right? Peter becomes, uh, you know, again, the spokesman for the apostles. He's preaching the gospel on Pentecost, pointing people to Jesus. Which means Peter's denials and Judas's betrayals are not the same. You may have had some major failures of your own and wonder what happens now. You might wonder, am I like Peter? Or am I like Judas? Well, here's how you find out. What matters now is not what you did in the past, but what you do now. Judas betrayed Jesus and then took his life. And that was the end of Judas's story. Peter denied Jesus three times, but he didn't quit. And And Jesus didn't leave Peter alone. Jesus came back to Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? And even though Peter had failed Jesus badly, denied Jesus publicly, even cursing while he did it, Peter could say to Jesus, Lord, you know I do. You know I love you. Peter's denials weren't then because he didn't love Jesus. They were failures, they were weaknesses, they were sins. But they didn't disqualify Peter from following Jesus or even being a leader among Jesus' people. So here's the question if you are struggling with knowing what to make of ways that you have failed and sinned in the past do you trust Jesus now do you still want to follow him 
Do you want to be near Him? Do you want to love others? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be in fellowship with Jesus again? If so, it's not hard to tell you who you're more like. It's Peter. And if Jesus restored Peter, then Jesus can restore you, can restore me. And once we're restored, what do we do next? Jesus tells Peter, I know that you love me. Here's your job. Feed my sheep. I know that you love me. Here's what you do now. You show your love for my people by caring for them, feeding them, shepherding them. You love Jesus. You trust him. You want to follow him. Don't let your failures from the past get in the way. Confess those if you haven't. Ask God to forgive you and then believe that he has. And then move forward doing this. Loving Jesus and loving his people the way that he's loved you. That's what we are to be known for. Our love for one another that comes from Christ's love for us. Let's pray.